Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative. state's power grid operator says there's enough juice to fuel demand right now. A recent report warns that supply might run short in the New York City area in two years. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more. The New York Independent System Operator, or NISO, has been issuing quarterly assessments of the state's power reliability since 2019. That's when New York enacted its Climate Action Plan, aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions linked to climate change. Kevin Lanahan, who runs NISO's government relations, says the most recent report issued in July finds that without a faster build-out of the power grid, New York City will have a deficit as large as 446 megawatts in two years. That's the amount of power needed to run around half a million homes. The system has become strained in the sense of being able to deliver the megawatts across that part of the service territory under certain um, conditions. The warnings are limited to New York City right now, but Lanahan says upstate is also at risk. Several major manufacturing projects have been announced recently, including Micron in central New York, and they will require large amounts of energy. And he says the models that the independent system operators have been running are for normal summers. They have not yet taken into account extreme heat waves or prolonged periods of smoky air from wildfires. The unhealthy air from Canadian wildfires this summer has driven more people indoors. And they're likely to increase their use of electric appliances like computers, televisions and air conditioning. That puts a greater drain on the grid. In addition, solar panels used to generate green sources energy work less efficiently in the hazy air. The solar gets interrupted with the smoke, and we rely on that solar to shave peaks. Lanahan says a confluence of factors are causing the shortage, including the decision to shut down older, dirtier power plants. They were used to boost energy output during peak demand periods. There's also changing consumer habits. A growing number of people are switching to electric or hybrid cars, which need charging, and more people are buying all-electric heating and cooling systems, like heat pumps. Also, more people are returning to cities to work post-pandemic. But Lanahan says alternative sources of energy to replace fossil fuel services are not coming online quickly enough to meet that demand. Offshore wind projects in Long Island Sound will not be completed until 2028 at the earliest and could take until 2030 to be fully operational. He says that's not enough if the state wants to reach the goal stated in its climate action plan of net zero emissions by 2050. We need to develop more renewable resources, and we need to keep a careful watch and eye on this balance between demand and supply through the transition, because if we, if we create this imbalance, then we're going 
to risk outages. He says there are some hopeful developments. The Champlain-Hudson Power Express pipeline is scheduled to bring hydropower from Hydro-Quebec to downstate by mid-2026. Lanahan says New Yorkers can do their part, too. He says even raising the temperature of the air conditioning by one or two degrees can make a difference. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. LGBTQI issues have been at the forefront in American politics lately, with a recent Supreme Court decision at the end of June siding with a cake maker who didn't want to make a cake for a gay couple. I spoke this week with Amanda Baybine, Executive Director of Equality New York, who talked about the recent Supreme Court decision and her legislative goals for the LGBTQI community in 2024. One of the big pieces here in the Supreme Court is there's a disconnect from what the culture is, right? Like you just shared, I also have some amazing nieces. One of my nieces um, came out as queer when she was 11. Um, And I remember being like, oh my God, you know, I could never, (laughs) you know, uh, with the generational stuff. So there's this huge change, um, you know, and her, she was telling me her, she has a non-binary friend, she has a trans friend, she has a lesbian friend, she has some straight friends too, you know, but everyone really talks about kind of, you know, who they are and it's not really as, you know, taboo as it used to be, right? Or, you know, the level of, you know, discomfort within your own community, right? So let's talk about middle school. It's very different. However, this disconnect with the Supreme Court is that that's not the same. They're not seeing that. We have a very conservative, obviously an older aging group who are making these decisions. And so that disconnect makes it really hard when, you know, we're seeing, you know, on the ground more acceptance But then in our policies, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of, you know, negative things come out of the Supreme Court. And I heard you start to say transgender before you said LGBTQ, which I think spot on around that is a lot of these bills, of course, are across the board LGBTQ, but majority of people are attacking transgender individuals. And I want to make that very clear. That is an issue that, you know, majority of these bills are focused on, whether it's in sports whether it's in gender-affirming care, um, they are attacking transgender people, and it has been a very conservative um, note and movement um, over, you know, obviously for a very long time, but particularly the last few years. um, We've seen a rise in, you know, a lot of these anti-trans bills. Um, And so, you know, a lot of, you know, what we're doing here is trying to figure out, you know, what can the states do? Um, you know, what, you know, what, what can we do as we're working towards, you know, doing things on a larger level? I mean, uh, many of you might know, too, is we're still fighting for the Quality Act, which is in D.C. It's a national um, bill, you know, that would 
it's very simple that people will not be discriminated, you know, based on their sexual orientation or gender identity and employment and housing, you know, all of these areas that touch our lives, right? Um, and so with the Supreme Court, you know, we're seeing all of these, you know, these rulings just roll it back. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, and I think a lot of people have heard, you know, the website case. There was never even a gay couple, right? And and the fact that, you know, well, the lack of fact-checking, um, but also, you know, the the idea and, the, and people being emboldened to make up stories and be pushed to even have a case at the Supreme Court is, is absolutely wild um, when there's nothing there, right? There, there's no um, validity and, and, and no, you know— um, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. However, it still was something that helped, you know, the the right and the conservatives put together a really terrible, um, you know, ruling, which we're really upset about. Now, you have some priorities going forward in 2024. You want to promote comprehensive sex ed in schools. I can't imagine that's going to be easy with what we've seen going on with school boards and just teaching uh, (laughs) history of the country. And then you have the Gender Identity, Respect, Dignity, and Safety Act. Here comes big pushback, I would imagine, when you're talking about schools, not only because parents and sexual education is a big deal in general, but, you know, when you throw in religion to the mix, then people Mm -hmm. start quoting the Bible against you. Yeah, a thousand percent. Uh, absolutely. And this bill has been, uh, you know, there's so much coalition work. Um, you know, we're working with lots of organizations on this. Nightclub, you know, our state, we're, we're even working with, um, you know, larger organizations, right? We have all the Planned Parenthoods, you know, of New York on this. You know, we have a really large group, but you're right, you know, especially with the religion piece especially with parents, getting comprehensive sex ed has been really difficult, um, a lot of pushback. You know, one of the things that, that I always like to share, again, is very similar to what I was talking about with gender-affirming care. When we talk about sex ed, we're, you know, people go right away, oh, we're teaching people sex, you know, in second grade. What is sex? No. It is very age-appropriate, right? So we start off talking about things just like consent. What is consent? Do you want to hug? Do you not want to hug, right? What does that look like? You know, all these things about, you know, our bodies and how they work, right, um, really helps us destigmatize, um, and particularly with, with LGBTQ people, right? Um, and so, yeah, it, it has been really difficult. You know, we are, we're meeting monthly. We're trying to push it through. Um, we have a few champions that, that we're hoping are, are going to be um, doing some work, but we're, we're, we're starting a brand new campaign this year um, to try to push that through. And then, you know, with the Gender Identity, Respect, Dignity, and Safety Act, which is a mouthful, I know, GERDs for short, um, is really making sure that trans people are in the right um, facilities when they're in prisons and jails. So in 2019, we passed GENDA, the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act, um, which took years to pass, about 18 years, to include trans people in anti-discrimination here in the state. Um, They passed it for sexual orientation years before, um, but they left trans people out. Um, And so we finally got that passed. However, there was a bit of a loophole in that where jails and prisons were not included. 
So legally in New York State, you know, based on your sexual orientation or gender identity, again, this is all on policy. This is not personal experience. But, you know, you cannot be discriminated when you're looking for employment, housing, even credit at banks. But again, jails and prisons were not. And so imagine being, you know, a transgender woman who's put in a male facility. Frightening and inappropriate. So we're really trying to make sure that we're changing that. And of course, you know, we're working with a lot of people who don't also want that based on a lot of our conversations already on people's thoughts about trans people and and what's appropriate and what's not. That's Amanda Baybine, Executive Director of Equality New York. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Well, we may be in the dog days of summer, but some folks are already thinking about winter. At a plastics factory in North Tonawanda near Buffalo, workers are recreating a plastic blue toboggan that was once a staple of sledding hills. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, WXXI's David Andrietta has more. Bob Confer is the president of Confer Plastics. He watches as a stream of blue, hot plastic pours from a pipe like soft serve ice cream into a metal casing that molds it into a kind of sled that hasn't been seen in stores for more than 40 years. This is Confer's rosebud, and he says he's not the only one interested in getting this toboggan back in production. We get inquiries probably 6 to 12 every single winter from people of my age, which would be Generation X, and also we get the inquiries from boomers where they say, I want that sled because I grew up with it, I loved it, and I want to share it with my kids and my grandkids. When Confer was a boy, the plastics factory his grandfather founded made tens of thousands of these sleds for the Lewis Marks Toy Company before that business went bankrupt in 1980. They were sold in J.C. Penney's, Sears, and Montgomery Wards throughout the Northeast and Midwest under the forgettable name Snow Toboggan. But for the generation that grew up riding it, there was nothing forgettable about it. That sled was the most agile, fastest thing out there. Chuck Turbot of Buffalo still remembers getting his snow toboggan after the legendary blizzard of 1977. He was thrilled to learn that the sled he enjoyed as a boy will be introduced to a new generation. Yeah, I think once they take a couple of rides down on, on one of those, you know, all the other sleds will, will be left in the garage. <laughs> the toboggan coming off the line at Confer Plastics is almost a carbon copy of the original. The sleds of the 1970s didn't have those, and somehow, kids of the era seemed to survive. Rick Rayom recalls barreling down hills with his sister near their childhood home in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. He was such a fan of the snow toboggan that when he lost his, he stole his sister's. A few years ago, he contacted Confer Plastics to ask if they still made the sleds because he wanted his young daughters to have their own. The company remembered the inquiry and recently shipped him two, fresh off the assembly line, free of charge. 
he immediately told his sister. I was like, hey, you know, they sent, they sent me two versions of the, of the new sled, you know, and she said, does that mean I get mine back? And I did not respond and still haven't responded to that question because of my love, love of the sled so much, you know. So, so both my sister and I have, have, yeah, great memories and love of these sleds. Confer says that corporate America might think he's, quote, a little bit crazy for reviving a product that was all the rage around the time of the pet rock and disco, but... It's good to be crazy, especially when you're dealing with nostalgia and people's love for it, because if there's love then and love now, we want to make love for the future, because we're not just making a sled. I look at it as we're making smiles and we're making memories. This time around, the snow toboggan will be marketed as the Retro Racer, and Confer says it will be available on Amazon by the fall for somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to $50. I'm David Andrietta. The Battle of Plattsburgh commemoration remembers the battles on Plattsburgh Bay and along the shores of Lake Champlain in September 1814. The organizers of the annual event announced this year's schedule this week at City Hall. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley was there and filed this report. This year will be the 25th anniversary of continuous commemorations of the September 11, 1814 naval battle on Lake Champlain that Winston Churchill called the most decisive battle of the War of 1812. It was a key factor in drafting the Treaty of Ghent, which ended the war. 1814 commemoration incorporated President Tom Donahue. We have to remember what happened here in Plattsburgh. There's been some uh, very important things that happened in the Adirondacks. Everyone remembers the uh, miracle on ice, but the miracle on ice wouldn't be possible unless we had the miracle on the water back in 1814. As for the schedule, Donahue notes that there's a combination of traditional, new, and renewed events. We got a lot going on this year. Thursday through Sunday, all the museums in the city are open. The big news this year is on Thursday night, we're going to have a concert at the Strand with the United States Navy Military Band. Haven't been here in over 10 years. It should be a great, great start to the commemoration. The Battle of Plattsburgh Parade this year should be bigger than ever. Uh, we got a full schedule. Donahue says more reenactors are expected to attend now that cross-border COVID pandemic restrictions have been lifted. It's been three or four years now since they've been able to come across the border. We had the big uh, gun debacle last year, but that's all been straightened out. So we have a lot of reenactors coming. They'll have the encampment at the Kent DeLord House. A poster contest has been held since 1998 to help educate area young people about the historic battle. Education Committee Chair Linda Ward says school curriculum changes motivated reissuance of a locally produced coloring book depicting the Battle of Plattsburgh. In 1998, when the children uh, were asked to interpret history through posters, they were actually able to do that and do it sometimes on their own because they understood the history. But as the years went on and the children weren't learning the history, it became apparent through their artwork that they were a little bit at a loss for uh, knowing other than people shot at one another and one side won and the other side lost. So we have tried to start a program through the years filling that gap. Ward hopes a well-known philanthropist will be able to serve as Grand Marshal of the Parade. The General Society of the War of 1812 members are descendants of people who actually fought during the War of 1812. 
they're coming up here, they're going to be participating in some of our events, but one of their members is a gentleman by the name of William Pomeroy, and he decided that he was going to put his money towards history and health. It's the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. They've given us $10,000 every year, and we uh, learned that Mr. Pomeroy was going to be in Plattsburgh, health permitting, with the society, the General Society of the War of 1812, and we've invited him to be Grand Marshal of our parade. A link to the full commemoration schedule is at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A local motorcycle dealership is partnering with the Wounded Warrior Project on a travel program to help veterans suffering from PTSD. The Legislative Gazette's Alexander Babby with details. Riders came to Albany Monday ahead of Tuesday's Project Odyssey kickoff at Spitzie's Harley-Davidson. The 12-week program and cross-country trip aims to aid veterans' recovery from PTSD by encouraging collaboration outside their comfort zone. Most participants are strangers, and riders don't know where they're going in advance. Susan Bingham, Spitzie's event coordinator, says the program helps participants transition to civilian life. They're used to, in the field, maybe, you know, just certain kinds of instinctive protocol and reactions. There's more structure, which can help them in some sense, but in other, like, situations... When you come back, if once you lose some of that structure, having tools to kind of keep you focused. Manny Acuna, a Marine from Pennsylvania and Odyssey participant, says the push inspires positive change. They don't let us know a lot ahead of time, only for the fact being they're trying to make us fight our fears. So they don't let us know until like the day before, which is cool because a lot of times the unknown is scary to a lot of people. So it's kind of a healing process for us also. Bill Philipsick with the Wounded Warrior Project says it's meant to broaden veterans' support network. It's all about helping the veterans in that connection, developing stronger connections. And maybe in this case, with this area where we recruited locally, uh, it would be for uh, maybe finding a new ride partner. So that way, when they're maybe struggling, they can come out and get some uh, wind in their hair. Annette Payne, Chief of Mental Health for the Albany Stratton VA Medical Center, says the share of veterans with PTSD is significant. In our most recent conflicts, the percentages have been as high as some estimates as 50%. Payne says that's attributed to changes in warfare as well as better understanding of what PTSD is. Payne says the effects of PTSD are different for everyone. For some people it can be sadness, depression, withdrawal, isolating from others, a change in routine so that not attending activities that a person might usually attend or uh, withdrawing from social interactions that they might usually be involved with. The Wounded Warrior Project says it provided more than 40,000 hours of outpatient care and therapy sessions for veterans and their families in the past year. 
Brian Dykes, a former Army Cavalry Scout who served in Afghanistan, says connecting with people who have similar experiences makes recovery easier. You don't have to talk as much. There's a there's a language that people understand, and, and so it's kind of nice. We can just kind of look at each other and bob our heads, and there was a whole paragraph said that just bobbing your head. Participants are encouraged to set self-improvement goals to work on over the course of the trip. Dykes says he's normally reserved. For me, it's important just to be social and and try to get out of my, uh, my shell a little bit. Dykes says people with PTSD are often scared, not violent. They pick up bad, ha bad habits to navigate the fear. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, fall into substance abuse issues, gambling, relationships, poor financial decisions, and they, they struggle. Dykes says the stigma compounds challenges people with PTSD face. You're supposed to be tough and be able to handle anything. Oh, um, and that... Trying to do things by yourself like I always do is actually weakness. Uh, you, you're stronger with a group. Dykes says that's especially true for him. I was put in a situation that I thought I was able to handle. I had friends uh, die because of a decision that I made. Um, and they don't, they don't train you how to, to deal with that. A week of mental health care is scheduled before the crew hits the road with initial stops at battlefields in Bennington and Saratoga. The itinerary after that is revealed day by day. Nicole Elder served in the Navy and Army. I almost backed out on the trip because it got in you know, the way of other people's plans, and I said, you know, you can live without me. So I'm doing things for myself and allowing myself a little time for me. Elder says that's been a challenge. You come back and you try to find a place in society, and we don't blend in really anymore. And I don't know if it's harder as a female or not, but I... I feel more comfortable around, you know, the guys and the vets and everything and keeps coming back. And I like to get together where I live. There's not a lot of veterans, so doing these things, you know, it gets me out a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I need to do it. Elder says organizers take care to build a strong group. They send you a thing afterwards and say, okay, you're approved. And then they just do email updates. You know, here's a packing list, here's what to expect. Um, and then that was it. We did a two days ago, I think it was. The group members then met via video before gathering in Albany. Acuna says all veterans should get involved. If you find one thing about yourself, you found a thing, and that helps you. If you've served after 9-11, join the Wounded Warrior Project. It's an awesome tool to put in that toolbox for you and, and just to be with your brothers and sisters again. Acuna says the Wounded Warrior Project covers most of the cost. The only cost that for this thing is just to get here. They supply the, the housing, the food, everything. Now, there's some projects that... They don't supply everything, but they let you know that up front. This specific trip is for solo veterans, both men and women, but there are other versions. They have couples odyssey because sometimes, even though you're married and after your service, you're strangers again. So it works on, on relationships building. Uh, I've been on two uh, couples odysseys. I've been in men's odysseys, which is a great way to you know build that brotherhood again, something we all miss once we get out of the service. And then this is the first time of a, of a riding odyssey. There's more information at WMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Alexander Babby. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2330. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.